I'd like you to open your Bible once again to Psalms 85 for just a moment, and then we'll go to 1 Samuel chapter 7. I'm continuing on the subject of revival. I thought last week at the end of the message that would be the end of this particular little series, but given time to think about what else the Lord said in 1 Samuel 7, I've decided to add one more message to the series. Now, in revival, we get this from Psalms 85, where it says, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? And while revival is often centered around, that is in Christian circles, revival is often centered around getting the lost to come to church so that they can be saved by hearing the word. But in this particular verse, and it's more what I'm geared towards, revival seems to have to do with those who have already had an experience with the Lord, but have gotten away from it. And when you're God's elect, when you're one of his people, while you should never wonder, some have. We call it backslidden. And God, because he chose you to salvation, is going to see to it that no matter what you're trying to do, no matter how you're trying to live and what new freedoms you have found, you're not going to be happy or comfortable there. And he's going to make it difficult for you. And when he does... Like the prodigal son we spoke about, a man comes to his senses and realizes his need to get back to where God had once brought him or her. That there was a time in their life in which they found newness and real true joy. And it didn't matter about what you had in your pocket or where you lived. You had found the Lord and there was something so wonderful about that that it superseded circumstances and you were just glad. You loved to sing, you'd go to church and God was taking care of you and, and feeding you his word and that was making you glad. And then you get away from that and you realize in the pursuit of other things in this world, other things in this life, things that you think will make you happy because people that have those things seem to be happy and you begin to go away from the Lord's way of living and doing things to another way. And you find yourself one day very disappointed with your life, disappointed with your circumstances. You're really not happy. You don't worship anymore. You may still attend church, but it's lost its glow. And the rivers of living water seem to be nothing more than a swamp. And you're just existing with church as a part of your routine. And God can speak to you there and remind you of the way it was. And in his love and his long-suffering toward us, invite you to return and come back. Now, I believe that's what the word revive here is talking about. Because these people had gotten away from the Lord. The ark has been gone out of this place for 20-plus years. They have nothing of God in their life. But now they're reminded of it. And they remembered and they want to come back. And when the psalmist said, will thou revive us again? It's like another translation. The Bible in basic English said, will you not give us life again? Because the word revive is reviva. You know, viva la France. He said, or long live. The word is a word for life. Will you not give us life again? He said, so that your people may be glad in you. Folks, one of the wonderful parts of our week, one of those things that we should experience at least twice a week is gladness of heart when we meet together. This should be a time that we look forward to coming together, a time to worship together and as a corporate body, praise the Lord for his goodness. We don't take advantage of that. I know far too many Christians, I've seen it far too much here through the years, that the song service just drags. People don't want to sing. People just don't have any desire to sing. So they said to the prophet, now if you look in 1 Samuel 7, Samuel the prophet, he said to them, the end of verse 2 says the people lamented 
That's what happens when you really know that you're not doing well at all. And you wish you could get back to those simple days of joy in God. And the people lamented. And then, in that condition, in that state, Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel. He said, if you do return to the Lord with all your hearts and put away the strange gods among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord. Three things. If, if you're willing to pay the price, if you're willing to return, come back to where you already have been. If you're willing, there's three things that you must do. First, put away the gods, the things that you're turned after, the things that you're pursuing. It might be your job or your career. It might be an education. It usually has to do with money. But put away these gods, these things that have drawn you away from where you once were. Get rid of all of that. And prepare your heart, secondly, unto the Lord. This is the whole focus of your life is your heart. It's the central you. What you are in your heart, you are, period. As a man thinketh in his heart, out of the abundance of the heart, a mouth speaks. Everything has to do with the heart. God sees the heart, knows the motivations and the intents of the heart. Thy words have I hid in my heart. The heart is all about you. Prepare that unto the Lord and give place to God and make it his place. And then the last thing we looked at last week was serve him only. Serve him only. A little picture in my mind this week of the way it should not be is uh, a person hired to work in a restaurant. I'll say a waitress because most of the people that's ever waited on me have been waitresses. Every now and then you get a waiter. But let me use a waitress. And she comes to the table to serve you. She comes to take your order. And she may say some, how may I serve you? What can I get you? She's there to do that. She's there to serve. And you say to her, I'd like to have the steak and the potato and a salad with a certain kind of dressing on it. And she would never say, are you sure you want that? Because it's not her place to ask you whether or not you want that. Because the menu, the word of, I mean, the, excuse me, the menu there before you tells you what you can order. And you tell her what you want. So she goes to the kitchen and in a little while she comes back with a hamburger and some french fries and a little cup of slaw. You say, uh, what's this? Well, it's food. You ordered food. Now, I ordered a steak with a baked potato and a salad. And you brought me a hamburger and french fries and slaw. And she says, look, steak, hamburger, it's still meat. Meat is meat, isn't it? What's wrong with you? You legalistic? Huh? What are you so legalistic about? It, it just, it's meat. And french fries, potatoes, mashed, baked, boiled. Who cares? They're potatoes, brother. How many of you know she wouldn't last long? But how many times does God show us what we can order and we don't get what we ask for? Because somebody, us, we thought we knew better than what God offered. You know, a server gives you what you want. And we serve the Lord on his terms. If he said, this is what I want, then that's what we do. We have to make that resignation to serve the Lord. Because most of us, if you're willing to admit it, for much of our life have served ourselves. We do what we want, as we want, and when we want. We like to add the flavor of religious acceptance to that, but we do what we want, and we don't want anybody to tell us we shouldn't because who are you to tell me what I can or cannot do? You know, that's become a mantra in this age. Who has a right to tell anybody? You know, I have a right. How's that? How arrogant would that sound today on CNN? I have a right to tell you what's right. And to tell you what's wrong. If I didn't have that right, I wouldn't be here this morning. But there's one thing that is right, that's the word of God. And one thing that is wrong is what is not of God. 
And I have a right to tell you that. If we see a brother overtaken in a fault, who's going to say what's a fault? We are. He's taught us what is right. He's taught us what is wrong, hadn't he? And you see something that's not right. If you care about the person who did what was not right and you don't want them to be judged for it, you go to them. And if they say, well, who are you to tell me what's right and wrong? You say, I'm not here to ask you to be like me or anybody else. I'm telling you that what you did was not what the Bible said you should do. God's going to judge you for that. That's our role. Part of our service to God also includes our service to each other. In love, we said, serve one another. Speak the truth. In love, care about somebody. Be compassionate about other people. In other words, if you want to return to the Lord, everything has to come back. And then today, the message I debated on in verse 3, and the Lord will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Did your Bible say that? And the Lord will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, it seems to me, you make your own judgment, but it seems to me that if we will do three things, God will do something that we needed in the first place. But God will not do what he can do unless we do what he tells us to do. Put away God's, prepare your heart and serve the Lord. And he said, if you'll do that, I will deliver you, in this case, from the hand of the Philistines. So deliverance follows revival. Can I say it that way? When revival comes, deliverance from something comes with it. Remember the psalmist said in Psalm 126, when the Lord turned our captivity, we were like those that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter. And the people said, the Lord has done great things for them. You can't deny it. When revival comes, it affects even the lost. You have to believe that because in Psalm 40, he said, I was once mired down in the miry clay. And I cried unto the Lord. And the Lord heard my cry. And he lifted me up out of the miry clay. And the Lord set my feet upon a rock. This is revival. The Lord turned my circumstances from darkness and gloom. He brought me to his light and suddenly everything becomes new. Everything is fresh again. And he set my feet upon a rock and he put a new song in my mouth. And many shall see it and shall fear and shall trust in the Lord. That's revival. This is when life comes and when God renews us. If I'm talking to you today, or you may need this someday, you may not, this message. But when you're revived, when you are restored, when you are refreshed, when you are renewed, when God does the work that only God can do, then deliverance comes. For God himself involves not only in the restoring of your life, but the cutting away from your life of the things that used to bind you, held you down, made you captive, the things that troubled you, the things you couldn't get out of. Now, today I want to talk about this. Whether I get done today, I don't know, and I could really care less. I just want to start talking about it. But one, who were the Philistines, and what are we supposed to learn from them? That is, there's a natural people, but can we not see something spiritual in it? That's one. And secondly, why we need deliverance. A lot of Christians don't think they do. And yet they're bound up, as they say, as tight as a tick. And then we want to talk about how deliverance comes and then the evidence of deliverance. Let's take, first of all, who were the Philistines? Number one, who were the Philistines and what do they represent? Now, we know historically the Philistines were a coastal people in what is today called Israel. In that area south near the ocean, the Gaza Strip, where the giants were, 
is they say was the origin of the location of the Philistines. Eventually they became, the whole nation became Philistines, all the different clans, the Hittites and the Havites and the Amorites, they were all more or less the same kind of people. But they were a people who were the enemies of God. And what they were were people who were not tolerant, would not accept, would not work with God's people. And when God's people came into the land, they became instantly at odds with those people. Not because they knew them or, were any, or scared of them. They just didn't want anybody new taking over their land. And yet God, when he brought those people into the land, before he brought them in, when he rehearsed the law, Deuteronomy, when he went over the law again, he plainly said, when you go into the land and take over, I want you to destroy them all. You see, what is in the land that you're going into? And we could use, instead of Philistines this morning, let's take the principalities and the powers, the works of the devil, the kingdom of darkness. Y'all know what that is. Now, this is not a popular subject in the church today because people would rather not talk about the devil. And yet, how can we not be ignorant of his devices if we don't know what his devices are? That's what Paul wrote. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant of the devil's devices or his schemes or his wiles or the Greek word is his methods, how he operates. For he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. He's very subtle. He uses logic and reason. Hath God said, well, why would he do that? Well, that doesn't make sense. Why would God do something like that? I mean, if God is good, like the Bible says, then why is there so much evil in the world? Why are all the little thises and all of that's dying, all the disease and sickness? If God is a compassionate, loving God, then why this? Why the accident that took a, a father or a child or a disease? If he's so good, why are we having all these problems? And see, now he talks like that, and immediately the seeker, huh, well, why doesn't he do something about it? It never occurs to them that God made us all with a will. That every man has a power of volition or choice. And just because God has said he will do this, that doesn't mean you're going to accept it. Most of the time, the devil gives you an alternative. Oh, don't get bogged down in that. You can't have fun doing that. Look over here. Boy, this is whoo. And the enticements of the devil draw you away into a dark life. It seems like fun until you reach the end of it. And you can't get out of it. And you're in a hole. And you're bogged down. You can't stand this. You can't stand that. And that's why so many people commit suicide. They can't cope. And the one who led them to that place was the devil. Well, how can that be? I go to church. The devil goes to church. He believes, Bible said, and he trembles. He knows the end. He can quote the Bible better than we can. He quoted it to Jesus. But he's all about capturing, being clever, manipulating your thinking and your mind, getting you to choose the wrong thing because when you choose the wrong thing, it's Ephesians 4 and verse 27, you give place to the devil. This is the way he operates. He never changes. He never will change. You can never defeat the devil in your life to where he's ashamed to come back. He never gives up. You cast him out, Jesus said, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a man and the house is cleaned and garnished, that demon that was cast out, that devil, that agent of darkness, that property of the devil to destroy people, he goes out and takes with him seven other spirits worse than himself and they come back and find the house emptied and cleaned and garnished and they enter back in. He never gives up. He never quits, just like the Philistines. They were defeated time after time by king after king, and they never stopped trying to defeat God's people. And they were able to defeat God's people when God's people turned away from God. 
God let the enemies come in. He let the ark be captured in 1 Samuel 6, 4, 5, and 6. He let them go into despair. He let them lament and languish in captivity for years. They were tormented, defeated. There was no peace. There was no joy. There was no worship. There was no temple, no church, no anything. They just simply got what they asked for. They turned away from God and they got the devil because it's either or. So he said, when you go into this land, you're going to face your enemy. He will never run from you unless you resist him. And if you resist him, he will flee from you, but he will face you. He will come against you. He'll be in the school system. He's all over the TV, the newspapers, magazines, and ugly friends. You see his work everywhere. The devil never hides when he's got somebody in his grip. He comes at them straight up to condemn them. When a person lives in condemnation, he begins to live in torment. When a person lives in torment, he is in bondage and he is a captive to the powers of darkness. And he cannot worship. They cannot raise their hands and rejoice in the Lord because all they can think of is the devil reminds them of their mistakes. How can somebody that talks as ugly as you talk, acted as bad as you acted this week, how can you raise your hands or praise the Lord or sing? Huh? You're condemned. There's another ruler in your life. Somebody's got his hand on the throttle. And Jesus said when he comes, he comes to kill and to steal, and eventually to destroy. Doesn't care how old you are, doesn't care what color you are, doesn't care what your name is or how your family was or wasn't. He just wants lives. He wants your children, and if you don't teach them, and if we don't warn them and show them the way, he'll get the children too. Anything that can bring sorrow and sadness and and defeat and forlornness into your life, the devil will do it. Because his goal in the end is to get you to give up. Quit fighting. Hang your harps on the willows. When they ask you to sing, say, how can I sing the Lord's song? I am so, I am waiting. Why are you down in the hole? I remember years ago, there was a lively song in your mouth. It was praise unto God. And you danced and you ran and you, whoo! Now, I'm not a Pentecostal. I know they do that. But I'm not against true, honest exuberance. And then one day, you just realize it's gone. Why? Well, look at your lifestyle. Look at what you're listening to, what you're watching. Look at your life. The things you once kind of separated yourself from, because the Bible said, come out, and you did, and whoo, and then you were enticed to kind of drift back in. You know, we don't want to ram this down our kids' throats, we often said, so we kind of came back. And the Philistines, they were still trying to get you back. Philistine, listen to what God said about the Philistines. Turn to Numbers, if you will. Numbers 33, verse 55. He told them in verse 52, when you go in, when the Lord brings you to himself, you cleanse yourself of all filthiness of flesh and spirit. Get rid of everything in you that the devil did. Well, I'm sorry, I'm talking, I forgot to read. Verse 52, you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures, uh-oh, and destroy all their molten images and quite pluck down all their high places and so forth. Now notice, if you don't do that, verse 55, but if you will not drive out the inhabitants from your life, I'm sorry, of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass. This will happen. 
Those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes, thorns in your sides, and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. Now that was a literal oppression of physical people. The spiritual application, you have to see something spiritual in this. Like Paul in Romans 15, he said, the things that were written aforetime, time, well, that would be this, were written for our learning. So what do we learn from the Philistines? Well, we learn that there are natural people that we can see, and then we realize that we're wrestling against what we can't see. Our enemy is not a seen foe, he's an unseen foe. Isn't that right, Ephesians 6? Do we not wrestle with principalities and powers? Is not their design your life? the life of your children or your health or your safety? Isn't that their design? Does not the Bible speak of deaf spirits, dumb spirits, unclean spirits? There are legalistic spirits, religious spirits. There are lust spirits. These are the agents of the devil who go about to do that. One time a spirit spoke up and said to God, I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets. And the spirit's one work was to go, and he had a right. He entered into these false prophets. And the information they gave to the congregation, excuse me, to the king was false. The king was pleased. He liked the message. You're going to win. Nobody will be able to stop you. Yay. And the prophet of God said, that's not going to happen. But see, there are false spirits. And because the church today largely dismisses the idea of such a thing, they listen to whoever, whatever. They discern nothing from the word. They pay little attention as to how accurate something is. And they become victims of falsehood. And falsehood is what the Bible calls deceit. The Greek word planeo, it means to cause to wonder. And you wander away from where that wonderful place where God brought you and you were singing, sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. And you went from that into something now, the songs are just little mumblings. And that's what happens. See, our foe is not somebody you can see. We're in a land of promise now. Thousands of promises are given to us. And there's somebody who goes about like a thief. Trying to talk you out of these promises. Talk you out of this. Steal from you. Rob you. Cheat you. Mislead you. Entice you. We're even warned if they don't speak, whoever these people are that are speaking to you, if they speak not according to the word, they have no light. And the problem with that is, if what you're hearing is darkness, you're going to wander like a blind man all through life. So disappointed and so full of questions. Why doesn't God do something? And there's a still small voice that will say, God already has done something. He raised Jesus from the dead and he gave you his word. Now you're sitting there without wanting it. You're not paying attention to it. You complain about how much of it you have to hear at one time. He preached for an hour. The most precious commodity on this earth is the word of God. Only a few can hear it. And complain about it. Go your way. Go your way. Grumble and mumble and complain the rest of your life. All of that is evidence of the work and the activity of the devil in your life. Didn't say you weren't Christian or nothing. I just said that you're not enjoying even a part of what God has for you. Somebody has lurked in the darkness of your family. My family, like Bonnie's family, we talked about this once when our eyes were first opened. Our families were robbed. They were cheated. They heard nothing their whole life. They just were members of some little church somewhere that had no influence on how they lived. They still argued and fought. They still gossiped and had problems and they still and nothing that came out of that little church they were part of had any effect on their life. 
the devil was able to talk them out of what they heard and continue to talk them into what he was doing. He made them afraid and fearful. My mother said if a stormy day came, even in the wintertime, and the, if the thunder rumbled, they would throw fire in the stove, put the fire out. Fear. They were full of fears. My daddy was, end of his life, was full of fear. The church he was a part of did nothing. Absolutely nothing to equip him to fight the good fight of faith. Had no faith. Except in a little bunch of beads and some mantra and some mumbling he did. God's people are being robbed. God's people are taken advantage of. Didn't Paul say there are in pulpits angels of light? Dressed in sheep's clothing. This could be sheep's clothing. As far as you know. Dressed in sheep's clothing. Robbing the people. Misleading the people. And people follow personality. They don't follow the word. They follow personalities. They follow movements. They follow fun. They follow excitement. They don't give much attention to whether or not what they're saying is in the word or not. They just follow something new and something different. I've seen many movements in the last 30 years. Many. And the devastation in every one of them lines the path where they were to where they should have been. The devil is clever. Philistines, demonic powers, they're everywhere. They try their very best to defeat you. And God said, if you don't drive them out of the land, you know what they will do? They'll be like, you know, remember Paul talking about thorns in his flesh? Everywhere he went, they vexed Paul. He could go and have a little revival meeting or start a church and these people would come in right behind him and try to tell him everything Paul said was wrong. That's the way the devil works. It's the way he works. Paul said, I sought God and the Lord said, these are thorn in your flesh to keep you from being pumped up, thinking you're somebody special. That is somebody who should be admired and looked up to. Paul finally wrote in 1 Corinthians, said, we're nothing. We are nothing. It's all about God. We're just hoses. And he's the water. He said, to keep us from being exalted, he said, he let all these things happen. Paul had to conquer them. He was in shipwreck. He had to fight them. Lord, at night in a basket so the women wouldn't persecute him. Snake bit. Poisonous snakes, beaten many times on the back, always in controversy, it seems. Can I have some relief? Even in Acts 27, when Paul was in a jail cell, having been beaten all that day and his hair pulled out by a mob of religious people, the Lord appeared to him in a jail cell. He said, be of good cheer. Paul didn't say, right. He said, you're going to go testify some more. Then you're going to die. He didn't say the word die, but we know he did. So be of good cheer. Hang in there. Devil's not going to quit fighting on you, and I'm not going to stop him from fighting on you. Some people can take more than others, and with ones that can't take much, God won't allow them to get much. But the devil does whatever he can. What do you say to God about Job? Let me have him. And in the end, we found that he wouldn't give in to that either. Trials and testings are all about God limiting but allowing the enemy to come against you. To test what you say you believe. Whether or not you'll keep believing it or, well, I can't believe I'm going to church and this happened. I'll quit. You'll be tested because the devil knows how to tempt a man. He knows how to dissuade a man. This word vex, you see the word vex in verse 55? It means to be hard-pressed, anxious, worried, and distressed about what to do. You ever been there? 
I'm not saying you can't naturally be wondering as a Christian, well, I don't know what to do about, you know, our building. Well, there's some details we don't know about. Now, we're not vexed. We're not tore up about it. We just have to deal with it. But the word vex here would have to do more with being torn up about it, distressed. One commentator said this. He said, it is used to describe the action of an enemy, a famine, or an army pressing upon a city, besieging it. Turn to Judges 10. Just go to your right three books. Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Chapter 10, beginning in verse 6. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and served Balaam, and Ashtaroth, and the gods of Syria, and the gods of Zidon, and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the children of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines, and forsook the Lord and served not him. There are eight ands in there. And, and, and. It's like they did this, and they did this, and this, and this, and this, and this. All of it in total means this. They forsook the Lord. What if I told you every time I see another empty seat, I think somebody has forsaken the Lord? That may not be true because they could be on vacation. You know that. But how many have forsaken the Lord through the years? Because they got tired of the same old, same old. And yet, let me tell you something. God never changed his ritual and his way of worship. Never, ever changed it. It was established A whole lot, they never did it, but it never changed. Same sacrifices, same requirements, priesthood, the altar, the brazen, laver, the holy place, the temple, same thing inside, same thing in the holy of holies, never changed a thing. Same sins, needed the same sacrifices year after year after year. And they went into the Canaan's fair and happy land. Ha! They begin to see these Zidonians and these Moabites and these Havites and Hittites and these Amorites and all these Ites and Icks and Ticks. And when they went to their ritual routine, it was full of lust. And they thought, wow, look at that. And those cute little Moabite girls begin to wink at these little Jewish boys and entice them and drew them away. Well, he's so cute. She's pretty. Yep. And she's designed to lead you away from God. Oh, no, I can do that. I can say, you know, a person who says, oh, no, no, I want to get them saved. That's like bringing me a hamburger and french fries instead of a steak and potatoes. We're just so smart because the devil makes you think you're smart when really he makes a fool out of you. You think you're in charge and you're not. He's in charge. Look at verse 8. After it says the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, verse 8, and that year they vexed and oppressed the children of Israel 18 years. 18 years. And the last part of verse 9 says they were sore distressed. Wouldn't that have been a sad and sorry 18 years of life? Everywhere you go, you're in danger. You never can just go out and enjoy a walk because there might be a Philistine who wants to just beat on you. You had to do your crops somewhere in private because if they found them, they would either steal them or burn them. You have no power to resist. Nothing you can do about it. You're bound. You're a captive. You're enslaved to your sins and your weaknesses. And you can do nothing about it. And you've about come to the place where you say, why even bother? A philosophy came into the church once. It was said, well, you know, some people have it and some people don't. Some people get it and some people. And if you're one of those, that's just the way it's going to be. Who taught that? God never taught that. Out of whose mouth did that come? Some preacher said it, but God didn't say it. Somebody has misled people, causing them to resign to their weaknesses and give in to their torments. 
I'm just a poor. And they start singing like that. If they even sing at all. And you read other places in the Bible when God said, you go in, you destroy all of these people. They will vex you. Let me tell you something. When you come to the Lord, when you come to Jesus Christ, one of the things you must do is realize that for all the years before you came to Christ, I was 28. So for 28 years, the devil has trained you. He has misled you. He's corrupted your thinking, your philosophy of life. He's trying to put you in the driver's seat and not God. And he did. He made your mind to wonder during a meeting at church. The devil calls the kids sitting in front of you to start playing and talking while you can't hear the message. A distraction. Or you're sitting beside some sorry soul that's text messaging during church. Sorry. S-O-R-R-Y. You're not listening to the word because you're in charge. God's in charge of your life. You're in charge. You're the one that's making the rules in your life, not God. I've heard that. And you go back to what you were doing. All of these kind of things begin to happen. They begin to take place. You know what's happening? The devil is just drawing you deeper and deeper into his net. Into the trap he laid, the snare of the fowler. He just draws you just a little bit deeper into it to defeat you and to stop you. What if we had a church filled with just deadness? I look at some of the little old country churches. There's one on the corner down by me. I would to God. They would let me have a one night a week service. I'd love that. I wouldn't let you all come, but I'd love to get in there and just talk to those folks. I like country people. But just over time, the young ones quit coming. They didn't, weren't learning anything. There was nothing going on. They got out of there. And just through time, they kept dropping off and dropping off to just a few older people who were going to die. And nothing there. What kind of service would we have? Brother Guthrie and them, they just bought a church over in Virginia. Six people left. All of them were old. 80s. Nobody left. That's not God. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Our children are supposed to follow us, aren't they? But the Philistines, folks, they come into your life. They do whatever they can. And once, as, as I said, for 28 years of my life, I had gathered in all the wrong information. 2 Corinthians 7 and he said, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved. Now, we talk of dearly beloved ancient or saints? Saints, all right? Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved. What are we supposed to do as Christians? Cleanse ourselves. Oh, I got cleansed when I got saved. Did you? Did you? Did you get a new brain? Somebody looks at the likes of me and says, did I get a new what? Did I get a new what? I mean, this is Kentucky. I said, did you get a new brain? No, I've got the same old brain. Well, that's the problem. You got the mind of Christ, don't you? But you didn't get a new brain. Wait a minute, wait a minute, time out. I have the mind of Christ, but I didn't get a new brain. Are we on the same page here or are we wondering? Let me see. We do have the mind of Christ. Christ in you is the hope of glory, isn't he? But what about this brain that was crooked and brainwashed for 28 years in my life? Paul said, what? Be no longer fashioned according to this world. Didn't he say that? But be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. It's a process. It's the walk of salvation. It's a time thing. 
By the renewing of your mind so that what? So that you can prove what? What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? That is the way we should go that has the blessing of God in it. Anything else does not. So our mind is being renewed. We sit in church and we hear the word. And the word is designed to renew us. Reinform us. Bring information from heaven to us. Like he said in 2 Peter 1. Through the knowledge of Christ, we are partakers of the divine nature, that life inside of you. But we have to know something, so God arranges a knowing possibility. We come to church, we sit here, and hopefully we're taught the truth. you got to make that decision yourself. You search the scriptures to see if it's true. We learn. Because as we learn, God begins to show us a more perfect way. That's his will. Now, are you still in 2 Corinthians 7, 1? Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us, as an act of our will, cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of flesh and spirit. How are we going to cleanse ourselves? God makes the provision of soap, doesn't he? Somebody said, what are you talking about? Hang on. Hang on. You can hang on or you can hang on. And he said in Ephesians 5, you're going to turn to there. He's going to cleanse the church with the washing of water by the word. Didn't he? He will not only sanctify, that is set his church apart from the world as uniquely his, his property, but he will cleanse that which he has set aside for himself. He will cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. The very word that will reveal to us the will of God is the very word that's going to cleanse us. But if you don't want to be cleansed, if you want to think, oh, I've heard that. Well, I know that. Yeah, I know better. If you want to put yourself back in control, then revival just left. There's nobody in this room, nobody listens, nobody has ever lived on this earth that knows too much about God. Nobody knows too much. And even with you all, there's room for more. <laughs> Say something. There is room for more. So what is it about... Learning about the way of God and dealing with Philistines. What are we supposed to see here? Well, let me go back over it again. I've been talking about it for 50 minutes. Let me say it again. Every one of us comes to the Lord full of Philistines. There's not a soul in this room that did not come to the Lord full of Philistines. You were God's chosen land. He picked you to dwell in. And you so full of stuff. But you were weeping and sad and sorrowful in your heart when you came to the Lord. And you opened yourself up to him and you got a glimpse of glory and you began to rejoice in it. And God says, now it is necessary and important for you to begin to learn how to live my way. Because if Christianity is anything at all, it's living on his terms. Nobody has any more rights to do anything his way. It's all about God. And so God puts in the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pa, 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 pastors and teachers for what? For the perfecting of the saints. Then do we need perfecting? So we're unperfected people when we got here. Meaning that we were full of Philistines. You know what I mean. We were full of corruptions of various sorts. We still want to argue and fight and fuss and do the wrong things and think the wrong way. That's the way we were trained. It takes a while. Hopefully you're, you're parked somewhere that somebody will teach you. Teach me thy way, O Lord. Why? That I may walk in thy truth. Unite my heart, Lord, to fear your name. And in this way, I will trust you, follow you, and worship you. 
This is the only way it can work. If you want to be revived and experience newness and freshness, it's a daily walk. It's not something you did one night by filling out a card and turning it in. Now you're, no, it's a daily walk. It's a daily walk. It is one step after another from glory to glory to glory to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ who said the devil has no place in me. If the devil had no place in Jesus and he could live the way he did, could it not also be like with us? If we can get rid of this junk in our life, that we can say he has no place in me either. He can no longer control me. He can tempt me, but he can't control me. He, Jesus was tempted in all points like we are. But there was nothing in Jesus the devil could use. The only thing he can use in you is your flesh. That's all he's got is your flesh. And oh, how appealing the flesh is to get even, get your way, get money, win the lottery, and run around, try this and try that. Flesh. That's all he's got. You crucify that, and guess what? You got no, nothing for the devil to use. But a warning, Ephesians 4:27 says, don't give place to the devil. Because he goes about like a roaring lion, looking for whom he can devour. We're told to resist him. To resist him one way. How? In the faith. What if you don't have any faith? What if you don't even know what faith is? You can't resist the devil, can you? So you're back to philosophy and ideas and your way is, well, you know, this is the way I see it. Well, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, as far as I'm concerned, every way is the same. All churches are the same. They're all going to the same place. So, you know, there's, there's no difference in them. You've heard that, haven't you? I rebuke that. The Lord rebuked that. We're not all the same. But the devil wants you to think they are so that it doesn't matter if you go and sit and fall asleep or if you go and sit and get convicted. And conviction leads to something you've got to do. No conviction, you're dead. You're wandering around like a blind man. Nothing is pressing in you to get back to God. To find out the right way and deal with something in your life, it's all gone. The way the devil gains place is through sin. Sin. You give place to the devils because you, well, he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And sin does what the devil wants to happen to any of you, to separate between you and God so that God doesn't hear your prayers. Then he can tell you, look, quit praying, it ain't going to work. And it doesn't because your heart's wrong. Your life is wrong. Prayer meetings can be very dead things whenever you're not believing. It just becomes a routine. Thank you for the world so sweet. Thank you for the food we eat. Thank you for the birds saying Thank you, God, for everything. Amen. Now I lay me down to sleep and pray the Lord my soul to keep up. I should have before we can pray the Lord my soul. Take. That's the nighttime prayer. You got a food prayer and you got a sleep prayer. Because you're religious. But there's no connection. Nothing of passion. Concern. It's just something that is like a life. It's empty. It's just empty. Sin has many kinds of ways it gets into your life. Rebellion. Rebellion is so prevalent today, but there's rebellion. There's an indifference to the word of God, an indifference to counsel. You build these things up on the inside of you. They build up. You become who you are, the kind of difficult person if you are, you are because these things build up inside of you. You got all these ideas about how things ought to be and you're not going to change. Not even God can change you. Because all this stuff gets watered up on the inside of you. Listen to what Paul said about that. He said, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're what? So are we in a warfare? Do we have weapons to fight with? Are they pretty good weapons? They're mighty. Through God, what are they designed to do? Pulling down what? Strongholds. 
You suppose that strongholds are keeping revival out of people's lives? You suppose that personal strongholds in your life where the devil has gotten a hold is in a controlling situation in somebody's life? Do you suppose he got in there to control people's lives because you opened the door? And when he's controlling some part of your life, it's a stronghold. Like the person who had a religious spirit, a religious spirit. I've seen them in many different forms. I've seen a lot of religious spirits in my life. You try to correct them, and when they know you're right, and they don't want to give in to it, they start weeping. You did so hard on me, and I try so hard to be spiritual. You're so mean. And you, because you didn't press in, recognize this is the work of a spirit to keep his control of this person's life. Instead of you pressing in to get that thing out of her, you give in to it because you're emotional too. That happened to me once. Not the same thing, but it happened once. It won't happen again if it ever comes up again. I'd be the meanest old ornery thing. He's so mean. Actually, I'm not mean. But I know this, that when the devil pokes his head around, if you've ever had him in your life and you see the kind of damage he's done, was trying to do, and how he destroyed members of your family, you won't take any mercy on him any more than God said, take mercy on the Philistines. He said, kill them all. Leave none of them there, because if you leave any of them there, he said in Exodus 23, if you leave any of them there, they will become... As thorns in your side, they'll vex you in the land. So if you want to get free, you're going to have to come to the Lord, do the things he said early, get your heart right to serve the Lord, and he will begin to deliver you. You've got to do it on his terms. And if you want to be free, you just have to trust in the Lord and let him have it. Otherwise, you're going to live captive. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy in chapter 2, the last verse, he said how people are taken captive by the devil at his will. He was able to capture. He was able to capture members of my family. I can look back and see it. You know, I realized studying this that Years and years ago, deliverance and demonic oppression was a really big subject. Spent lots and lots of time dealing with it and with people. And through the years, I kind of hadn't dealt with it much. And I realized how many experiences I have had in this area. And not that I know a whole lot about it, but I know enough about it to know how to deal with the devil. Probably ought to teach on it some more. So you know how to deal with it. Because one of the things that we do he said, these signs shall follow those who believe. And not only did he say they'll speak with new tongues, but he said they will cast out what? I would dare say there's not a handful of Christians in any church in America, the best, the biggest, the smallest, and the greatest that's ever done that. But would shudder to think they were going to cast out a demon. What's that? They don't know. And yet the Bible is explicit and full of occurrences of demonic oppression. How Jesus dealt with people that had spirits in them. Or spirits tore a father's son to the ground and he had an epileptic seizure caused by a spirit. And, and Jesus cast it out with a word. And a boy that couldn't hear. And people that couldn't talk. People that couldn't see. Blind spirits, they call them deaf spirits. These are demons, agents of Satan. They're sent to this world to destroy the happiness and the joy and the fruitfulness of every human being on this earth. And the only people who can do anything about it are knowledgeable Christians. The only people. Who can resist the devil without knowing how? You tell me. How can we know how? We learn. We're not to be ignorant of his devices. We're to know that he goes about like a roaring lion looking for victims. 
for the person who's not paying attention, for the person who's too smart for their own good. He uses people like that. Revival. Revival is when God begins to deliver us. Sets us free from bondage and captivity. The first message Jesus ever preached. The very first message that Jesus ever preached. He said he came to set the captives free. To loose the prison doors. Who was he talking about? Us. That we were bound. He said, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Peter wrote that. To destroy the works of the devil. Should we not do the same? As the Father sent him, he said, so send I you, didn't he? And if he sent him to destroy the works of the devil, should we not do the same thing? In fact, the Bible said he will not come back until we put his enemies under our feet. Then he's coming back. So that means that the devil has no place in us. We don't give him place. We get rid of him. We cleanse ourselves of this filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Spirit. There's a deliverance there that needs to take place. Well, who were the Philistines? What do they represent? They represent the devil and his work in destroying in binding and making captive God's people so that they do not live the way they should, nor do they worship God who has liberated them because they are living unliberated. God help us to get our eyes open to see that we're called in this world to fight, to wage war against an unseen foe. We can see what he's doing. We're familiar with things he's done. He did it to us. But having rid ourselves from these things and having aligned ourselves more with the will of God and experiencing freedom, you shall know the truth. You shall know the truth. You shall know the truth. And the truth will what? Make you free. And the more free we get, the less strange we act. The less unusual our behavior is. We become those discernible people who have been liberated and set free. And we begin to worship God. Because the devil hates worship. He hates worship. When you begin to worship, the shackles come loose. They just fall off. And we worship because God has done something wonderful and mighty in our lives. And yet, it's not a work that happened once and ends. It is an ongoing work. Don't fall back and don't quit and don't give up. We're only beginning. We're towards the end of our journey now. The best part, I do believe, is coming. When we shall find ourselves sitting together without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, nothing of the devil in us anymore. We're not done. I'm so glad. We'll do it again next week. Father, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, continue to liberate your people, Lord. I know you already have. But I ask that you would continue to open our eyes, reopen our eyes, make us glad, bring us into that planting, in that garden, in your presence. Let us to know joy and peace again, to know that there is hope and safety and we do not have to be in fear. Bring us to that place, Lord, where we triumph daily in Christ Jesus. I ask that you would speak with every individual in this room, those who are watching, those who listen. That absolutely nobody, Lord, escapes dealing with themselves about this matter. 
that as God has taken up residence in our life, it's like the land. And it's full of Philistines, and we got to get rid of them. Lord, help us do that so that there's none left to interfere with your will in our life. And we ask you to do that. We thank you that you'll do that. And we receive that with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Stand to your feet, amen. How many of you have enough time in this day, if necessary, you could deal with your own life a little more? Could you? Is there anybody here, I want you to show me your hand. Is there anybody here that doesn't need any work done in your life? How many of you confess and profess you do need more than what you got? That's most of you. Good. Well, let's sing a song as though that's true. All right? I don't know what we're going to sing, but let's sing like it's true. Amen. Amen. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold and precious silver. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold. One desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my master, ready to do. song. My one desire is to be holy. Would that be revival? Amen. Amen. To be like Jesus. Amen.